Hello and thanks for tuning in. This is the radio ministry of Grace Community Church in Jefferson City, Missouri. Please open up your Bibles and join us. Here's Pastor Dennis Helton. Well, we are going to go back to the uh, the confession. We are getting near the end. Actually, I have planned uh, one session tonight and then one next week, and that will uh, do it. At the end of March, we will have finished. Uh, so, it's 28, 29, and 30 tonight, and you'll see why we're doing that, because 28 is baptism and the Lord's Supper, and it's really one article. And then 29 is baptism, and then 30 is the Lord's Supper. <laughs> so, uh, 28 uh, just kind of gives a, a brief, uh, short overview on it. And uh, then it moves on into it. Anyway, um, we uh, will get into that. Why don't we start off with a word of prayer. Father, we uh, thank you for this glorious day you've given us. And thank you for the rain and the sunshine and just uh, all sorts of different kind of weather that you uh, give us just even in one day. uh, Thank you, Lord, for what we need. And what we need most is, of course, you. We need your word. We need your truth. Uh, We need to be revived constantly, and uh, you are the one that we go to. And so as we uh, look at your ordinances tonight, what Jesus has left for the church, that uh, we can understand them uh, in a biblical way and be able to make them apply to our lives even more as uh, we see them as means of grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, um, what we're going to do tonight is use Zach's uh, Colonial Congregational Confession, and you'll notice that as that is in a really fine point, I think I got it to nine point, and it might be eight, but I had to get it on one page, (laughs) so that's one reason. There are a lot of points on the Lord's Supper, um, but... At any rate, I um, I hope that uh, you can get the idea on it. And I didn't uh, think it was that necessary to go ahead and put it on the uh, the system. Uh, you can just read it off of that. Um, but uh, Zach did a good job on on this uh, part here, as uh, he did everything else. But uh, I'll read that first one, which is baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of positive and sovereign institution, appointed by the Lord Jesus, the only lawgiver, to be continued in his church to the end of the world. And, uh, of course, we get that uh, based out of Scripture. Matthew 28 is the Great Commission. And in there, we get a little bit of the mention of baptism says in uh, verse 18, 19 and 20, Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age." So that verse right there even takes uh, entails definitely the baptism, but I think uh, when he says 
all that I commanded you. Teach them to observe that. Of course, he told them to uh, observe the Lord's Supper and uh, we'll be teaching them about that and what, what that means. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, 26, uh, there we get uh, Paul's inspiration from the Lord that he received. And 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six deals with the uh, Lord's Supper. And he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There we really get his death and then also him coming back, uh, his second coming. And uh, that is to be done in the church. So that is the, the thought there. This chapter really here is, is so short. Uh, the next two chapters really cover uh, the material. Um, they're very brief, uh, at least this chapter is, and, and actually 29 is too, fairly straightforward. They are ordinances, or uh, sometimes you'll see the word sacraments, uh, ordinances of the positive and sovereign institution, as it's worded here. Um, and one might ask, well, what's an ordinance? You ever ask that? What's an ordinance? Uh, out of the Oxford English Dictionary, it's worded as this, the authoritative direction how to proceed or act. We've had an authority, and that being the person of Jesus Christ, uh, who told us how to proceed or act. Uh, a positive ordinance or law is something something that would be in addition to the law of nature. Like you have a law of nature, um, this particular thought here, a positive ordinance, would be something that's not demanded by nature. Uh, it's something in addition to the law of nature. Uh, it's something that didn't exist, for instance, in the Old Testament. These New Testament ordinances, uh, you don't really see uh, where baptism and the Lord's Supper were uh, really there, even though there are pictures of it there. And then in the New Covenant, we see that those ordinances really take place. David was not obligated to um, be baptized or take the Lord's Supper, or Abraham was not necessarily baptized or took uh, the Lord's Supper. But when the New Covenant came in, uh, it definitely uh, became in as a, as a sign there. Uh, all laws of God are positive or natural or a combination of the two. So you have a natural law or you have this, uh, this positive law here as, as the ordinance. Um, we are to observe these ordinances. He, he really only gave two. The Catholic Church has the seven sacraments. The Protestant churches really have two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, but they do um, demand observance and obedience to his sovereign institutions, as he says in this first line, they are ordinances of positive and sovereign institution. Uh, they're peculiar. Uh, we have a particular love, I think you could say, that we have for Christ. Uh, he is our king, and we desire to carry out his law and his will. So the will of Christ, the will of the king, we are subjects, we want to carry that out. Uh, anybody that would despise his ordinances actually would have a lack of respect for the kingly office that Christ has. Yeah? Is, is this 
colonial congregational confession, is this specific to your church? Well, um, Zach Whitson, of course, is, you know, he's a member of the church, and what he did is he took the historical confessions and did what they have always done. They're almost all very similar. And he took uh, he took a lot from the 1689 confession, which was really based off of the Westminster Confession. And of course, you have the Savoy, those declarations. You have other ones, but um, mainly he took from 1689, kind of reworked it up, reworded it. Um, a lot of ye old English words that would be there. Uh, it's very similar to that. You'll read it almost word for word, but there are some areas where you can see he's changed, and he's he's brought in some other points, maybe expanded on some things, where one week we saw that there was much more than any of the other confessions. Well, and this uh, week to, I noticed there was less in some of it. Too, right. So, so right. it's kind of designed to, after that, but to encompass the beliefs of, of your church. Specifically, which for the most part are in line. Right. But there's right. A couple things that we know are different. And you could say, uh, are we a confessional church? Well, in the sense that we agree with those historic confessions and we even say them on Sunday mornings. We don't say the, the Apostles' Creed week after week right. or some of the things that are automatic. Uh, they're great teaching tools, great to get a grasp on what it is. and. Uh, there are some really uh, advantages in realizing that we're worshiping with the body of Christ now, but also the the body of Christ who was here that has gone on, and we will worship with them for eternity. So, uh, but the what they grasp there is is helpful in teaching. So, it, you know, it's not a must, but at the same time, hey, this is what we believe. So, yeah, we're confessional in the sense that we believe in the confessions. But do we do it by road? Is it, is it done as a, some manner or form that, that has to be done? N- not necessarily. But it, it shows here's what we believe. Here's who we are. Uh, like the Baptist churches, for instance, is Southern Baptist Church, you might have some of them who are Reformed that would embrace the same things, the 1689 Confession, what Spurgeon used or what have you. Um, uh, or they will use something that's really current going back to 2000, which is very simple in, in its reading. Um, sometimes I think it leaves out the sovereignty of God, whereas these particular confessions, you can't miss it almost from one to the next one. The sovereignty of God is in almost every one. Yeah. Right. What about marriage? Ordinances. Ordinances. Right. Whereas in the Catholic Church, does, does it, we... Does cor- recognize marriage as oh, well, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But it's not <laughs> taken a, a, as the way that the marriage is in the Roman Catholic Church. Okay. And, of course, you know, they, they have... Um, they have a lot of other ones too, extreme unction and yeah. Oh, yeah. and such. And of course, yes, uh, you know, a, a biblical church wants people to uh, be married, and they want them to be under the the word of God. But as an ordinance, it it, uh, it is not. Uh, it's not that everybody is commanded to uh, marry, for instance. What are their other ones? 
Confession. Oh, yeah, confession. I forgot about that. Last rites. Um, that's extreme unction. Um, good point. Um, of course, first communion. We're dealing with communion here. but uh, Their communion, as we'll see as we go through this, is definitely different than uh, what the communion could be in a Protestant way. Yes. Whereas there aren't any denominations. Well, denominations are kind of uh, built around confessions, but still confessions go across denominations. Right, they go across the boundaries, go across those lines. Yeah, like a a conservative Presbyterian might have much more uh, similarities with us Right. Exactly. Exactly. What church were you raised in? Hmm? What church were you raised in? What church were we oh, raised in? Raised in. Uh, it was it was independent, but it was Baptist Baptist. In Dominican Republic? Yeah. Is it a mostly Catholic country? Mm-hmm. But Reformed. The Protestant churches for the most part are reformed. Uh, mostly Baptist reformed there. That's incredible. There's no middle ground. Yeah, right. You're either reformed or you're a Or a So as we talked about the uh, authority here, um, of course Christ is the, the only lawgiver. He's, he is the authority. Um, he's the only one who has authority to add any kind of laws or ordinances uh, for the church to follow. And these, we, we know that um, as we see baptism and Lord's Supper, that they're to be observed unto the end of the world, as both of those said, um, as often as you do this, whether that, as far as Lord's Supper is concerned, and then uh, the baptism, um, and, and of course teaching, on that Matthew 28 no man ever has the authority to, to change them, to add to them. It kind of reminds us of the regulative principle to be accounted for in, in uh, this particular matter. Uh, often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You just keep doing it. And go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Um, a lot of these are, some of these are deriving from Westminster Confession, but there is a difference as we proceed through uh, going through baptism in, in chapter 29. Now, Zach actually has, I think, he's at 29, 30, and 31. I think that's the way he went. But I, I did the chapters the way that we have been doing and and uh, just kind of in the way that, that it's set up with in the Westminster Confession, because he added one. Um, let's look at in detail. Let's go ahead and uh, let's do the baptism there. Um, this chapter 29. Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ 
to be unto the party baptized a sign of his fellowship with him in his death and resurrection, of his being engrafted into him of remission of sins, and of giving up into God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. So there we have that stated forth in the first part of baptism. Uh, in the in the catechism, uh, Spurgeon had a catechism, and then it's asked, what is baptism? Baptism and a sacrament of the new covenant instituted by Jesus Christ to be unto the person baptized a sign of his fellowship with him. In his death, burial, resurrection, I was being engrafted in him, remission of sins, giving up himself unto God through Christ to live and walk in newness of life. Um, basically the, the, the same thing. That's what they will do in their catechism. They'll, they'll answer with the same one that is found here in the, in the confession. Uh, so baptism is an ordinance ordained by Christ Jesus. And as we touched on in uh, chapter 28, and uh, there again, we see that there's a sign. It's a sign of fellowship with him. It's a sign of fellowship into Christ's death. Um, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Go to uh, Romans chapter 6. That may have sound familiar what I just read. Did you pick out where that was at? Right in Romans 6, right? <laughs> if we wanted to read that together, you're probably wondering where I was getting that, but... Uh, uh, the scriptures are on your outline, right? Mm-hmm. Did I include those? Good. Okay. Um, in 3 through 5, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Um, Three through five there is a dry baptism because it's talking about being baptized into Christ. But it's a great picture also when we are baptized in water of what happened to us as we were baptized into Christ or placed into, immersed into Christ. And we were baptized into his death, his burial, his resurrection, uh, so that we could have newness of life. We're united in him. And so we're, you know, our, we're in the likeness of his death and the likeness of his resurrection. So baptism puts us into union and, with, with Christ himself, walking in a newness of life. Baptism is a is a great picture when we think of the, the water baptism. Like I said, that was that was what was hap- happening in our spiritual baptism. And that's what Romans 6 there is explaining. We have fellowship with his resurrection, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised. This is out of Colossians 2.12. Might be good to go there. There it is correlating... What happens spiritually 
And again, uh, you have that picture and illustration of the water baptism. Colossians 2.12 says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Now, earlier before this verse, he's talking about a circumcision in, in verse 11, a circumcision that's made without hands. And so there you get a little bit of a comparison of circumcision and baptism. It's not same, baptism is not the same thing as circumcision, obviously. But he's using that example there. We, know, we don't circumcise anymore. And he's saying that this is what happened. There was a removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He's the one that circumcised us. So there's the spiritual baptism that that is what happened. And, of course, there he's talking about being buried in baptism and then being raised up like our Romans 6 section was dealing with. Um, it's the powerful working God. And, by the way, you'll notice in there that it's uh, it's dealing with with faith, um, and there's a forgiveness of sins that has happened. So, fellowship with resurrection, Christ. Uh, another line that was that we had read earlier there was being engrafted into Christ. Engrafted is a permanent thing, isn't it? Um, not only being placed into, but engrafted, like you can think of uh, trees, uh, plants, where there is a grafting together. Uh, as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's out of Galatians 3.27. You were baptized into Christ, a dry baptism again, but there again we get, get it illustrated by the water baptism, <coughs> but we, we put on Christ. Baptism is so related um, to being uh, a believer. Even baptism in water. Um, here, it's saying that we've put on Christ. Uh, there's a union there. Um, it's not that we've been absorbed into Him, something like that we are God or little gods or assimilated or we've lost our identity, but we become in union and, and in likeness and in fellowship with Christ. And there's a permanent sense there in that engrafting. You think of First John, or, uh, John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. We're in that vine, we're in that tree. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, it has to have the abiding life of the vine. Also in that uh, baptism uh, confession there, we see that there is a remission of sins. Um, Mark 1, 4, for instance. You have John the Baptist. Of course, John the Baptist was doing baptizing. He was talking about repentance uh, and in Mark 1, 4, immediately in Mark, you, you get uh, a ministry here happening. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That was a picture of what was going to happen when Christ would be dying on the cross. And, of course, that's whenever the... Forgiveness of sins would be uh, would stick. 
That's what would make it uh, really official. But there was a remission of sins. There was, there, there was supposed to be a repentance as they, the people would get ready for uh, the one who was going to be coming there, Christ. Remission means a, a release from a debt. Uh, you, you were in a debt, you're released from it, a penalty, an obligation, a remission of sins. Uh, in Acts 22.16, 22.16, this is uh, dealing with remission. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on His name. Uh, there, a true baptism unto Christ and the baptism uh, of water is so related when one did that, they were cutting themselves off from the life that they had, and now they are new, and their sins, of course, we don't wash away, but uh, there is a command, and he says, become a believer, you know, trust in Christ, throw yourself on Him, however you want to put it, uh, be identified, be immersed, be placed into Christ, that's how you get your sins re- remissed, calling on His name, out of Acts 22 there. Uh, back in Romans 6, it talked about to live, to walk in newness of life, as he said. So all of this, we, we died with him, we rose with him, we live with him, and there's new life constantly. So baptism really shows what is happening in, in our life, not only what happened, but a continually newness of life. Um, those who actually profess repentance towards God and have faith in Christ, have obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ, really are the proper subjects of this particular ordinance. Go to Mark 16, 16. Now, throughout the body of Christ, we have a lot of differences on who can be baptized. In Mark 16, 16, right at the end of that particular gospel. We get this. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. Now that sounds like you, you get baptized, you'll be saved, right? We, we, we know throughout the rest of Scripture what that means. But he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. He's saying if you are a believer... Those are the ones who are baptized. Those are the ones who will be saved. You have to be a believer. Uh, an unbeliever will be condemned. They, they cannot. Well, let's extend on that a little bit more, and let's go, to, uh, let's go to Acts, where Peter is preaching the first sermon as the church has been born. And right there in Jerusalem, and after he preaches that sermon, the people are pierced to the heart, and... They ask, brethren, what shall we do? I said this to Peter. Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There again, there's repentance, there's baptism. The people were familiar with that baptism. Uh, and, and of course, again, it starts with that dry baptism, but Right there immediately, they were baptizing that very same day in the water to show uh, what, um, what had happened and, and their commitment there. There's a repentance there. There's a, you know, a, a public profession made. And, uh, and he's, it can be read, that word for, 
Repent of each of you, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for or because of the forgiveness of your sins. Because you have been forgiven your sins, be baptized. Because of what Christ has done there. Because you have that that gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, Look at Acts chapter 8, verse 36. Move on a little bit further in the book of Acts. And he says, as they went along the road, this, this is Philip and the eunuch, Philip is doing the uh, it's the Ethiopian eunuch, right? He's doing Isaiah 53. The eunuch is asking him the greatest question, you know, hey, what does this mean? <laughs> you got to love it. I'll pick it up in verse 34. The, the eunuch answered Philip and said, please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? It's of himself. Is it Isaiah? Or is it of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached... Jesus to him, preached the Savior. And they went along the road, came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. There is what the heart of Christianity is about. It's believing in Christ, throwing yourself upon the person of Christ, and so we, we get from uh, Philip there. He must have talked a little bit about baptism and water and such. And there was water that they could have done right there. He wanted to be baptized on the spot because here he is. He is uh, a believer. And he says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Peter gave that great confession. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Um, we profess, we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Right? Those great confessions are uh, something that it starts with our mouth. We believe in our heart, confess with our mouth. Right? So we have this, uh, this aspect of this, this belief here. Um, Acts 18.8. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue at Corinth, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. So the whole household got baptized. Yep. And you'll notice that household is a household that's believing. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. So there they are. There's a matter of believing. They hear it. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. So we don't see where people are baptized before they believe as we, just, as we look at Scripture. And that's what I'm appealing to. I'm not appealing from a confession or a commentary. All we have to do, though, I think, is look at Scripture. Let's see what the order is and how it's put here because man can get some ideas that uh, may not always necessarily be scriptural. It can be historical. And so we, we, I think we get some explicit statements here addressing who is to be baptized. Um, you, you get in um, oh, Acts 16, the Philippian jailer.
and of course we we know about what what happened there as uh, all of a sudden uh, we have uh, the foundations of the prison house being shaken and everyone's chains were were unfastened and verse 30 it says and after he brought them out he said sirs what must i do to be saved this is the jailer asking what what must i do to be saved they said believe in the lord jesus and you'll be saved you and your household and they spoke the word of the lord to him together with all who were in his house they spoke he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. So there again, there's a believing in the Lord Jesus. There's the condition. You believe, you'll be saved, and even anybody that was in his household that can, what? That believes. In verse 32, they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. The household doesn't say what age but um, I don't think we have to read into it and say, well, it means it always means nursing children. It does say a household. Who, uh, how old were they? Could they have been 6, 7, 10, 12, 15 uh, years old? We, we don't know. It doesn't say. But we, we get a, a, the same pattern. We have a believing. We have a speaking of the word. We have the, um, the hearing. And then we have the baptism. Uh, if we go to Acts chapter 11, I think. And even chapter 10. Pick it up, verse 44. We're at uh, Cornelius' house. You have quite a few people there that have come in. Uh, verse 44, while Peter was still speaking, he'd been preaching. Preached to them, preaching the gospel. While he was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit <laughs> fell upon all those who were listening to the message. So there again, a speaking of the Word of God, the Gospel, and then a hearing or a listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter, so here you have Jewish Christians now, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Before it was the Jewish people who had first <clears throat> heard the tongues, were able to understand what he was saying. And uh, now it, the same thing is happening with the Gentiles. Gentiles have a, a language that is, is different, and so they can understand. So now it's not only happened to the Jewish Christians, but now it's happening to the Gentiles who are getting ready or are becoming Christians. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ or in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. There are cultic type beliefs and uh, uh, the oneness movements who will say, Be baptized in the name of Jesus only. 
You can't say, be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because, first of all, they don't even believe in the Trinity. But So they'll claim this right here, and it has to be like a, a little tack on thing, in the name of Jesus. And so the name, the name of Jesus only. That's the kind of movements that are out there, too. Oh, oh every, this whole, I've never seen so many things. Bapt, baptism and Lord's Supper confuse people so much down through the history of the church and split Protestant denominations over the fact of how one's baptized or what it means and such. But it is an amazing thing. Um, but anyway, uh, there we have a preaching, the people hearing, um, they listen to the message, they respond to it. Um, there again in chapter 11, the same kind of thing happens. Uh, you hear the speaking of the words and, and uh, people believing people being baptized. Um, so, anyway, that's the kind of uh, thought you, you have there. I went over several. There are probably more that we could hit on. The, uh, the outward element, I think all denominations, as far as I know, use water. But I'm sure somebody, there's probably some church that has started and said, do you have to use Kool-Aid? I'm not so sure. But... <laughs> uh, Anyway, when, when we think of um, that, we think of um, Philip and the eunuch. He commanded the chariot to stop. Both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch. They were baptized. Uh, there's a, an immersion there, baptized. Um, anyway, so the, you know, the, the confessions will state differently. Some will say dipping of the person in the water is not necessary, but baptism is rightly administered by pouring or sprinkling water upon the person. So they won't say that it's wrong to, to immerse, but it's better to pour or sprinkle. Now that's in the Westminster there. Um, I would say, biblically, you do see the dipping of the person into the water, whether it be Jesus when he was baptized, John the Baptist did that, went where there was plenty of water. Uh, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, Matthew 3.16 John uh, went around Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there and the people were coming, being baptized. That's John 3.23, that kind of thought. Anyway, um, I think we covered probably all four of those. Um, or th are those four? Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's baptism. Um, Westminster also speaks to, and I know we've talked about this before, that the true... Reformers also believe in infant baptism. Right. But most, I guess... For, the, for most people in Reformation theology, for the most part, would believe in an infant baptism. Not that it saves. It, it To be honest with you, it's very comparable to what a lot of other people do. When they don't baptize infants, they have dedication day. Right. But, and, and in all fairness, it is not a baptism that is saying they are believers. Uh, I think there's some, there's some problems. There, it's definitely, there, it's problematic in, in, in a lot of aspects. Um, because what do you do after you have an infant? It, can one, two, or three years old? Uh, how about a five-year-old who professes to be a Christian? Can they be baptized? Well, at that point, they can't. And it's, for the most part, from what I've seen. Uh, and, and then the 
if you want to compare it to circumcision, people say, well, baptism is the same thing as circumcision. It's just, it's just changed over, and there is n- nothing in between there. Boom, boom, you go into baptism. Yeah. But the, the only thing is, that included everybody, but, but it was only the men who could have it when they were 12 years old, or 13, I mean. And, and uh, what circumcision? Yeah, but okay. Yeah, right. Thank you. Uh, but I was I was thinking of Abraham, um, and then of course Ishmael, and but then after that, then it was on on the eighth day, and that was to be uh, boys. But but that but when one was circumcised, whether they were believers or not, because they were of that whole Jewish race, because they were born into that, that's what they automatically got. Um, as far as Christians are concerned. Uh, of course, that's a different story. So most would say that, well, the parents at least have to be um, Christians and believers. Uh, there's a lot of different things that go back. Like I say, I, all I can do is go to Scripture and, and look at that. We could go to history and, and look at it too. But The problem I see with that, though, is the Westminster also says that the sacrament of baptism is but once to be administered to any person. I was baptized as a baby, but I got rebaptized when I was 50 years old because that's when I became a believer. And it didn't mean anything when I was seven days old to be baptized, you know? And I wasn't brought up in the Christian faith, or even as a Catholic, I wasn't brought up as a. And then they say it does something totally different. And they say what? They say it does something totally different, too. Yeah, yeah, what she's saying is the Catholic Church says that is, of course, that's a part, that's one of the sacraments that is dealing with salvation. You you have to be, and that's a different baptism. That is a regenerate. You're regenerated through that baptism. Uh, Lutherans even actually have uh, a regenerate Mm -hmm. baptism. When you're regenerated through Right, right. And, of course, we know biblically that that cannot be. We're saved by grace. Whether one is baptized or not, they, and, of course, there's a lot to that, but if one was not baptized, could they still be a believer? Well, yeah, it is, but now, now you have a problem of disobedience if they go on through without ever being baptized. But we know that, of course, the thief on the cross, and there are times when people can't be baptized um, because of different situations. So it has nothing to do with getting salvation, but it has everything to do with being obedient in that matter and then showing forth that. So was I wrong to get baptized? Well, in, in, during the time of the Reformation, they they would they might have killed you or killed anybody who did that because they were called the rebaptizers, <laughs> and they actually did. Uh, and I hate to say it, Zwingli, who you know is is, is a reformer, um, at one time he was. He was, well, he said, shoot him. <laughs> drown him. Drown him. That's right. But I was going to say that you can clearly see why the re- reform uh, tends to go for the infant baptism. It's because when, before the Reformation, remember, the state and the church, the Roman Catholic Church, were pretty much the same thing. Yeah. Right? 
So how did people get counted and accepted into their society was by being baptized. Mm -hmm. So if you had a baby, you took them, even if you weren't a believer, you know, mm -hmm. you were still part of the Christian nation. So you took them to the church, they baptized him, and they added him to the, to the census. Mm -hmm. And so when the Reformation happens, the, as it were, the entire nation became Protestant, you know. And so now they're saying, I mean, churches today are still married. They're just not Christian. Even with Calvin at Geneva, for Even instance. With, right, yeah. Calvin or Zwingli. Right. And so these people, they, they were going to get in trouble with their, with their leaders, with their government. And they, and they saw no need to get in trouble with them because they were professing Protestant faith. So they're just like, okay, we're going to keep this kind of marriage between the church and the state. And that's why you see, you see Zwingli actually say, yeah, drown them. You right. Know. Yeah. Yeah. We so you That's right. That's right. And the Lord's Supper is the same thing. Uh, Calvin got into trouble because he only wanted it for believers, people that, and there were people, scoundrels coming into church there, and they were, of course, it was an automatic thing, and everybody took communion. Now, where he was at, they did it once a year. That's all they did. He wanted to do it more often. But he really, he, one of the reasons why they kicked him out of Geneva the first time was over that issue of the Lord's Supper even. So you got baptism and the Lord's Supper, and that good, good point there, Alan, about the, the marriage of the church and the state. And, of course, you, you, you're going to have problems there if you don't go along with the state. So the church was in a, uh, answerable to that, although. Uh, so, yeah, that, that's a good point. Uh, well, the Lord's Supper, uh, of course, we're about out of time here, but, um, uh, it, of course, you have, you have the points there on there. Um, the Lord's Supper is an ordinance of the New Testament, instituted by Christ, wherein by giving and receiving bread and wine according to His appointment, His death is shown forth. The worthy receivers are not after a corporal and carnal manner, but by faith made partakers of His body and blood with all His benefits, to their spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. There are benefits uh, that the Lord's Supper has. We read our Matthew uh, 28. Uh, of course, you can go to Matthew 26. 1 Corinthians 11, we read earlier too, where Paul comments on that. Um, what I had read was the, the catechism, what is the Lord's Supper, but it was uh, basically coming out of your your first point there on the Lord's Supper. Um, of course, it's a... It's communion with Christ, and it's communion with each other. Uh, a lot of times when they're writing these um, particular confessions, they had to also show who they were battling. And, of course, the Roman Catholic Church, again, is uh, on the negative aspect here. Uh, the Lord's Supper is not to be seen in some kind of literal fashion as a sacrifice, um, but it's also it's seen as a memorial. It's more than just a memorial, but he says, do this in remembrance of me. Remember this. Keep doing this. This is why this is an ordinance in Luke twenty two nineteen. It's It's a, a memorial. It's to be viewed as a spiritual, uh, also a mental thing. 
uh, keeping it in mind. Remember, proclaim this. And, and then you get the benefit, the power, the, the help of the Lord's Supper. It, it is a grace. It's a, it's a means of grace to us that uh, memorials can do. They can help us in that. It's not magical. It's not physical uh, in that sense. Um, but it, it definitely is something that is real. Um, it's a visible gospel. The Lord's Supper is visible. You can see the elements. Uh, it's a memorial of Christ's work. You think of the body. You think of the blood. But you can never isolate the Lord's Supper from the preaching of the gospel. The two go hand in hand, but it by itself cannot stand. Uh, isolation then will turn into a superstitious view of it. And of course, that's what happens with the, the Roman church, and it's a, it's a sacrifice to them, a sacrifice of the mass, and they mean that literally, and they will tell you that. You know, we're not putting words into their mouth. That's what it's called. Uh, so the sacrifice that Christ did once and for all is not enough. What he did on the cross was not finished. Yeah, Debbie. Say something on that. If you talk to a priest or something, that's what Huh. Good question, right? And they said, What do you mean? I said, Get your little missile out. What does it say? That's right. And I said, Look at what you're saying. Listen to what you're saying. Don't just keep saying it because you do it every Sunday. Pay attention to what you're saying. Think it out. I like the way that he takes it. Uh, now, Luther thought he was believing the same way that, that Luther did, which is, um, it's not called transubstantiation, it's called consubstantiation, but there's very little difference because that's, that's the, it's Christ here on earth, around, underneath, you know, over, about, that's, that's, that's your consubstantiation, that's a way of getting around, because he, he didn't see that as a, as, a, as a sacrifice, like the Roman Catholic Church did, but he did see the literal presence of Christ being in the body, this is my body. Luther would keep saying that. This is my body. Esten. This is. And he said, as simple as it is. And that's why you had such a difference between the rest of the reformers and Luther. And he took that in a very literal sense. So, Calvin, and of course Calvin was uh, younger than Luther, and uh, what Luther had heard, he thought Calvin believed the same way. Um, we believe it's a memorial. Calvin would say he believed in it as a memorial, do this remembrance, but it's the presence of Christ is there. Here's where I can agree with that in the sense, yes, Christ is always here with us anyway. Whether before we came to Bible study, he was with us. As we come together, it's even special, whether it be Sunday morning or Tuesday night, and the Bible say Christ is with us. So we know that. But there's another sense is whenever you do take those elements and you're really concentrating, putting your mind uh, into what this is, it is a benefit. It's a help of bringing this picture into more of our mind, really seeing that this, this is real. 
Um, if it's if it's just a memorial that we go through in that sense of just we just remember, and that's basically what we're saying. But we're saying the presence of Christ, even though He's not partaking with us, we realize how important what it was that He did for us. So in that, I don't know how far Calvin went with it. I haven't totally understood exactly, but he's saying there's a spiritual sense. But I, in one hand, I think he was saying there's definitely not the physical sense that he was here. Christ is in the heavens or he's right here. If he's in a body, he can only be one place, even though he could be here real quick. But he's in a body. And they were saying that he came, he came down every time they had the Lord's Supper. And Calvin could not agree with that. So, um, I'm pretty close to what Calvin would say. If he took it and means it any further and getting close on the, on the Luther side, which I don't think and I don't see that happening, then I can say, yeah, I can agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, was, I, was, I, I was in some reading, and I think I only read one person, so I might be wrong. But it seems that Luther, back to that verse where it says that, this is my body, do this in remembrance of me. So Luther was stuck on the first part, this is my body. Zwingli was stuck on the second part, do this in remembrance of me. So Zwingli only saw it as a memorial. Right. And then Calvin comes around and he says, it's, a, it's more like what Zwingli is saying, but there is actual grace poured out on it's a means of grace. That's a good way to put it right there. Yeah, so you actually are getting grace when you take the Lord's Supper. And I guess he didn't understand exactly what that, what that entailed, but it was grace from God, grace to keep living the Christian life. Right. It's, it's right. Obedience. It shows obedience. Yes. Absolutely. That's exactly right. And so there's a, there's a blessing out of that um, it, it's a help to us even though we know it we've been proclaiming the gospel let's say all Sunday morning let's say and then we come to the Lord's Supper now it's a, a visible way uh, of doing that as we've been hearing it now we experience these elements that are physical uh, and, but yet it's a way of getting those, those uh, that and the reformers called it means of grace it's of course God graces us all the time, but that's a good way to, to think of it. Um, wow. Oh, by the way, as we were talking about the sacrament of the Eucharist, the Catholics said this in, in their canon. If anyone denies that in the sacrament of the Most Holy Eucharist are contained truly, if you deny that, Really and substantially, the very substance there, the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ and consequently the whole Christ, but says that he's only therein as as in a sign or in a figure or virtue, like what we believe, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed to be cut off or damned. And so that is quite think, the difference. Do you think Pope Francis <laughs> <laughs> Probably not, right? Or does he? If he's a Catholic, he really should, shouldn't he? The glory of the cross. 
Christ satisfied the justice of God, right? Against the sins of the people. He accomplished redemption once and for all. The sacrifice of the Mass denies that. If we understand and believe these truths of this popish sacrifice of the, of the Mass, of the Mass, Mass, <laughs> it's abominable. It would be abominable to uh, the Protestant confessions, wouldn't it? Uh, by the way, they have a tabernacle. Christ is truly present at all times in this little gold box in this tabernacle. And you'll know the people genuflect when they are walking down that aisle. They genuflect. The priest will be in front of the altar. Then he'll genuflect repeatedly all throughout that time during the Mass. They genuflect and they... Uh, believe that Jesus Christ is really present in that tabernacle. How ridiculous it is. That's Jesus Christ in that little gold box. Anyway. Well, he's also still hanging on the cross at the same too. Right. But that's why uh, these confessions were put out the way that they were. Um, of course, I'm going through these. I'm not reading all of those. Of course, you've got the text. A lot of them are out of the Matthew 26, 28, 1 Corinthians 11. You'll notice a lot of repeats out of that area. A lot of times we go with those. Um, what is required to be worthy receiving of the Lord's Supper? 1 Corinthians 11 says, It's required of them that they would worthily partake of the Lord's Supper, that they examine themselves of their knowledge to discern the Lord's body, of their faith to feed upon Him of their repentance, love, and new obedience, lest coming unworthily they eat and drink judgment to themselves. And then lastly, uh, it deals with ju- uh, the wicked. Um, what does it say there? All ignorant and ungodly persons, as they are unfit to enjoy communion with Christ, so are unworthy of the Lord's table and cannot, without great sin against Him, while they remain such, partake of these holy mysteries or be admitted thereunto. Yea, whosoever shall receive unworthily are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, eating and drinking judgment to themselves. That is what Calvin was saying about uh, the Lord's Supper as everybody was taking it. Matter of fact, I think it had everything to do with uh, Jonathan Edwards and him being fired of being um, pastor of a church. And uh, when, you, when you think of that, that's pretty incredible. Um, Anyway, this last one deals with people that are unbelievers. They're not to share in it, obviously. Um, That's why it would always be required that people who have professed faith in Christ, we don't put any restrictions on what denomination is. What we do say is that they be believers in Christ and they have examined themselves. Um, There is... Right, right. Of course, if they're consistent with their faith, that would be right. But what they're doing there, of course, is not communion at all. It is a sacrifice. It is a real sacrifice. Right, right. We could say, well, it. to me it means that, so it's okay. But this is what they're doing there. Uh, why don't we end with a Puritan's Lord's Supper prayer from the Valley of Vision. I'll, 
I'll read this. This is our prayer for the evening, and we'll dismiss on this. The Lord's Supper. God of all good. Here we go. Bless thee for the means of grace. Teach me to see in them your loving purposes and the joy of and strength of my soul. You have prepared for me a feast. And though I am unworthy to sit down as a guest, I wholly rest on the merits of Jesus and hide myself beneath his righteousness. When I hear his tender invitation and see his wondrous grace, I cannot hesitate but must come to you in love. And your spirit enlivens my faith rightly to discern and spiritually to apprehend the Savior. When I gaze upon the emblems of my Savior's death, may I ponder why he died and hear him say, I gave my life to purchase yours, presented myself an offering to expiate your sin, Shed my blood to blot out your guilt. Open my side to make you clean. Endured your curses to set you free. Bore your condemnation to satisfy divine justice. Oh, may I rightly grasp the breadth and length of this design. Draw near, obey, extend the hand, take the bread, receive the cup, eat and drink, testify before all men that I do for myself gladly in faith, reverence and love, receive my Lord to be my life, strength, nourishment, joy, delight. In the supper, I remember his eternal love, boundless grace, infinite compassion, agony, cross, redemption, and receive assurance of pardon, adoption, life, glory. As the outward elements nourish my body, so may the indwelling spirit invigorate my soul. Until that day when I hunger and thirst no more, and sit with Jesus at his heavenly feast. Amen. Remember the the grace that we were talking about? That was some of the grace. There's the benefits as we think about, as we take the Lord's Supper, the agony, the cross, the redemption, or our pardon, adoption, life, glory, the indwelling spirit, invigorating our soul, making us be blessed because of the Word of God that was preached by the Spirit of God impressing upon our hearts and then recognizing all that he's done for us as we read that whole prayer i think those were the some of the means of grace that was all included in there that's the idea of means of grace that's why we can say it's more than just remembering he died and rose again and he's coming back it does all that we proclaim that but look what it does for us hey we thank you once again for joining us We pray that this message would serve to edify you. And we say goodbye until next time. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make His face shine upon you. Until next time.